Well, if you are staying in here, I'll invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. <clears throat> We're in a series going through, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the book of Matthew. Uh, so we've been in here now a couple weeks. I think this is our sixth message in. Uh, one of the primary themes in the book of Matthew is that Jesus is king. He wants us to know that the entire book is, driven, is centered around the fact that Jesus is king. He comes as king, but Jesus is no ordinary king. He ascends to his throne, not by power and worldly strength, but through the suffering of the cross. Jesus is the eternal son of God. He is kind. He is gentle. He is merciful. He is the righteous king that the entire Old Testament has been anticipating and been pointing towards. He is the king who rules the nations And he will end all sin and all rebellion. And so Matthew is like this master scribe. And he's taking the Old Testament and he's showing how it all points towards Christ. And he wants us to see that Jesus is the king we need. He's the king we want. And he's the king we ought to believe in and worship. And so that's that's Matthew's goal. And so the, the world, though, has a different goal. The world, in opposition to the purpose of Matthew, will do all it can to deny or distort who Jesus really is. The world will say, well, Jesus didn't really exist. Well, he wasn't really the son of God. He didn't really rise from the grave. He didn't really do miracles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You've probably heard many things that people, that the world has said as a means of minimizing or or erasing or denying Christ altogether. And unfortunately, some of these lies will, will even make their way into the church at times. And whether they are believed or not, they can cause confusion and undermine the confidence that we have in the gospel of Jesus. So you don't, you don't need to believe the lies for them to be effective. Do you understand that? Like, th- think of these lies like, like termites, they begin to eat away at the structure of the house. The house will still stand, mostly. It will still stand, but it's weakened. And the world would love for us to have weak faith and be ineffective for the kingdom of God. And so this morning, we're going to look at two lies or, or two misconceptions that are often presented about Jesus. And so in our text today, Jesus is going to come onto the stage for the first time. So far in Matthew 1 and 2, we've seen the birth narrative But now Jesus comes front and center, and we are going to see that he will be baptized as his first act of ministry. And and the baptism is a treasure chest of information about who Jesus is. Last week, Jake said John the Baptist was like a herald announcing the kingdom of God has come. And now today, Matthew is like a herald, and he says, behold your king. So that's what he wants us to see. And so in this baptism, we're going to see the identity of Jesus. We're going to see the mission of Jesus. And the main point this morning is that we are, to be, we are to rejoice and be baptized for Jesus is the servant king who came to save. I want us to see how, how Jesus is baptized. And then at the end of today, we're going to look at why we ought to be baptized when we have faith in Christ and what, what, what that means and what we are affirming at that point. And so I want to go ahead and invite you, um, stand with me uh, as we read our text today. 
Each week we stand at the reading of God's word. We do so because the Bible is not like any other book. It is inspired by God, comes with his full authority for the purpose of teaching, for the purpose of correcting and equipping us that we would live a godly life in glory and for the glory of God. So Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, Father, we come to you now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Your Son has come that he would fulfill all righteousness, that he would meet all the demands of the law, that he would live in perfect submission and obedience to you. And Lord, I pray that as we walk through this text today, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we'd be in awe and that we'd be in wonder of who Christ is, of the gospel that is given to us by grace, that we would be saved, that our sins would be paid for, and that we'd be clothed in the very righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for those who are here and that they know you for their joy to increase, for their assurance to be strengthened. Lord, if anyone is here who has not been baptized but has, been, has believed in you, I pray they would desire baptism as an act of obedience to you and as an act of worship. And Lord, for those who do not yet know you, I pray that as we come into this text, we would see our great need for a king, a servant king, one who would come and do all that we need so that we could be saved and then lead us in perfect righteousness. God, bless the preaching of your word this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So I want to begin, and I just want to go over the two misconceptions. We'll hit them one at a time. Number one, Jesus rescues us from an angry father. Many people believe today that, that God the Father is like this, this angry toddler who didn't get what he wanted, got his toy taken away, and so he, he throws this temper tantrum, and yet his temper tantrum is that he's upset with all of humanity because it hasn't done what he's wanted to, and at any moment, the Father could just burst out in anger and destroy all of humanity. But thank goodness for Jesus who slipped out of heaven and came onto earth, that he would rescue us from his angry daddy. Have you ever heard of some version of that? Something like that. Now, if this was true, then that would mean that there's a division within the Godhead. The father and son would not be united. They would be at war with one another, which if that is true, then they are not in union with each other. God would not be a God of love because he doesn't even love within himself and he would not be worthy of all worship. But that's one thing that has been said. God the Father is his angry daddy just ready to burst forth in anger. But Jesus luckily comes 
and saves us from him. So we'll talk about that today. Number two, Jesus is merely a good example for us to follow. Now, Jesus is an example, and next week we will look at the fact that he is our example. But first and foremost, he is our Savior. And if we get those confused, we misunderstand Christ. He is our Savior first, and then our example. One of the most effective ways the world has tried to minimize Jesus is not by denying him, but by simply saying he's a good moral person who lived a life worth imitating. After all, he was an excellent teacher. He knew the the power and, and ability to wield stories. He fed the poor, valued the weak. He showed the importance of putting others first and and living a sacrificial life. And so if you want to have a satisfying and meaningful life, then live like Jesus. The world has no problem with Jesus being our example. No problem. They fully would endorse that kind of Jesus. But if we only think of Jesus in terms of a moral example, then we do not know him as Lord and Savior, and you cannot be saved. He cannot only be our example. He's far more than that. So we're going to look at both these misconceptions, and they're both addressed in the baptism of Jesus. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to turn now, look at the baptism of Jesus, and I want us to see two truths that we learn about Jesus that show that these misconceptions are indeed lies. So number one, the baptism of Jesus reveals the Father's love. So we're going to we're going to start at the second half of the passage, and then we'll, we'll come and look at the, the first half. So the baptism of Jesus reveals the Father's love. Uh, verse 16, John has baptized Jesus. Upon coming out of the water, the Spirit descends upon him um, like a dove. We'll talk, more, we'll talk more about the Spirit and his role of anointing and empowering Jesus next week. When we see that the Spirit will, will drive Jesus out into the wilderness where he will face temptation. In verse 17, we hear the Father speak. Now, surely, if if you've read the Bible, you kind of know when God speaks, things happen. And so surely, when God speaks, the Father speaks, his voice booms forth like the crack of thunder in a storm. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I don't think there was anyone who missed the message that was at the baptism of Jesus. You were probably miles away, and you could still hear the Father speak. Now, at face value, this message is extremely clear. The Father loves Jesus, and he's pleased with him. In fact, the word pleased means that the Father is absolutely satisfied with his Son. This means Jesus is not secretly snuck down to earth. The Father's not going, oh, I I didn't know you were down there. That's strange. Glad you got baptized. He's not caught off guard at all. The implication here is there's no division at all between the Father and the Son. They're in perfect unity with one another. This is why Jesus in John 14 will say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Or in Hebrews chapter 1, we read that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the glory of God. To see Jesus is to see the Father. They are at one with one another. No division within the Godhead. Jesus did not come down on a secret mission to rescue us from his furious and uncontrollable father 
rather the entire Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, they work together in harmony for our salvation. And this becomes even more clear when we examine the Father's words. You see, while, while the Father's words surely boomed forth like thunder, at the same time, they're kind of like a quiet whisper. Have you ever noticed when, when someone talks softer, what do you do? Kind of lean in, right? And so at one point, in one sense, this booming voice goes forth, and everyone goes, Behold, Jesus, our King, the Son of God. And in another sense, by using these quotations from the Old Testament, the Father's drawing us in that we would listen even more intently. You see, when, when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, he's saying there's something back there, there's a promise, there's a truth, there's a reality in the Old Testament that's finding its fulfillment, its greater reality now in the New Testament. And so when we read in the New Testament, Old Testament passages being quoted, where to go, well, what did that Old Testament quote say? What is the reality of that Old Testament text, and how is it finding even greater meaning or its true meaning now in the New Testament? And so the Father quotes two Old Testament passages here when he says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So let's look at them one at a time, and we'll just gain a better understanding of the Father's love for the Son and the mission of the Son. So we have the words, this is my beloved Son. Now that comes from Psalm chapter 2, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 actually. Now this is a kingly psalm. It's quoted many times. It anticipates the rule of Jesus. This psalm, this psalm shows all, all the nations and the cultures and the world at war with God, raging against the very rule of God. But this psalm promises that one day there's going to become a king, the son of God, who will come and put an end to all rebellion and all sin. Like, like a pot being smashed onto the ground, so Jesus will overcome and destroy all the nations and all the peoples who reject the rule of God. Jesus is the means the Father has chosen to bring justice into the world. That's, that's one of the things Christ has come to do. That's what the Father is, is testifying right now. This is my beloved Son. His mission is to bring justice into the world. This isn't a covert mission. Jesus' mission is the Father's mission. Now imagine some of you, we rejoice when we hear Jesus coming in great strength and great power to judge the world. We're like, yes! Finally, put an end to sin, put an end to rebellion, put an end to the wars and destruction and the ungodliness that we see in this world. But I imagine there's others who might recoil a bit. And you say, so you're saying Jesus is coming and all of his power like, like a tyrant? And he's going to now rule over help. He's going to impose his rule over all of humanity. Well, that doesn't sound very kind. Is that really a God I want to serve? And so with the next words, with the next words that the Father quotes, we gain a better understanding of what this king's rule will look like. He says, with, with whom I am well pleased. This comes from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Um, let me just read the first three verses 
of Isaiah 42. Just to give a little bit bigger picture of what, what the Father is saying. He says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now notice the word servant. Here in the the second half of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah writes about, about this suffering servant who will one day come and pay the penalty for our sins. And when it says he he won't break a bruised reed or quench a wick barely burning. He's saying this, this suffering servant is gentle and he's kind and he's merciful. And in fact, if we were to go a little bit further on in Isaiah to like Isaiah chapter 53, we see a very clear picture of what this suffering servant will come to do. This is what we read in verses 4 and 5. Surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So this servant, this suffering servant is Jesus. Jesus is the king who's come according to the Father's will that he would bring forth justice. And one of the ways that he does that is that he will go to the cross where he will pay the penalty for your sins and my sins and for all those who will believe in him. And so this king doesn't simply just come and impose his rule upon the world, but he comes and he goes to the cross and dies so that if we believe in him, we'd be forgiven of our sins. And yet if we reject him and say, no, I don't want Jesus to pay the penalty for my sins, then he, he will bring about his rule and his justice, and we will suffer the consequences of that. So our sins can either be paid for at the cross through Jesus our King as a suffering servant, or we will face the punishment when Christ returns. So let us not think that Jesus is a tyrant coming down and just imposing his rule, but rather he is the servant king, the one who comes and knows our greatest need and says, I will come And I will establish my throne through the suffering of the cross. That all who believe in me by grace would be saved and would be forgiven of their sins. Jesus' baptism here is a foreshadow of the cross. We'll talk more about baptism later today. But when Jesus goes down into the water, that's a picture of his death at the cross. And when he rises back up, that's a picture of Jesus rising victorious over death. And so when the father delights over the son's baptism, he's also delighting over the cross of Jesus. Do you see it then? If the father delights in the justice that the son has come to bring at his baptism that he's testifying of, then he delights in the cross of Jesus. This means one day when you stand before the father, if you believed in him, he will not begrudgingly accept you in the kingdom. He's not going to say, well, I guess you have to come in. You believed in my son and he died for you, so come on, just don't sit too close to me. 
Like, we don't have to worry about that. The Father's not just fine putting up with us because his son has saved us from him. Rather, if you're a father, you know this picture, you love this picture, and you dread the day when your kids have gotten too old for it. When you come home and they're excited and you walk into the door and they run towards you and you run towards them and they jump into your arms without even looking, you know, like before you've even put your foot down or your stuff down, like they're in the air and you're catching them or or they're catching you, or whatever that is. And, and so you catch them, and you hug them, and you kiss them, and you say, I love you. And they, they testify of their love for you. That's the picture that the Father has. As the Father loves the Son, so all who have believed in him, he loves with the same love that he has for the Son. That's what we're to understand here. The Father knows exactly why the Son has come because he sent the Son. The Spirit empowers the Son to accomplish the mission of the Father to save sinners at the cross. So myth number one is clearly debunked. There is no division in the war in the Godhead. Jesus has not snuck down into earth to save us from his Father. No, he's come to save us to his Father that we would have everlasting life. So myth number one is wrong. Now we turn to myth number two. Jesus is simply a good moral person. So this second truth, we see the baptism of Jesus testifies of his perfect righteousness. Last week, Jake did, um, he did a really good job preaching on the first half of Matthew 3. And in that passage, Jake said, John the Baptist was like a herald. And he was coming, preparing the way for Jesus, and preparing the way for Jesus and for the kingdom. And John would say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. And the evidence of your repentance is that you would be baptized. Baptism was a picture of your repentance, that you are now living for the kingdom of God. And he tells everyone, you need to repent of your sins, and you need to be baptized. But now Jesus comes to John, and he says, John, I need to be baptized by you. And John says, no, I don't want to baptize you. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine saying no to Jesus? I've come here to be baptized by you. I've come a long ways. This is now the first act of my ministry. And John's like, mm, that's not going to happen. Now why? Why does John not want to baptize Jesus? Because Jesus is a sinner. He's done nothing to repent of. Jesus is righteous. This is why in verse 14, John says, I need to be baptized by you. John knows, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals, much less am I going to go into the same water of you, hold you, dunk you, and bring you back up, not doing it, no way at all. So why does Jesus want to be baptized? If, let me ask, if this scene wouldn't hear, was not in your Bible, would you miss it? You're like, yeah, of course I would. That's the, it's like the Jesus answer, right? Would we? In other words, how significant is the baptism of Christ? The baptism of Jesus is so significant that your salvation hinges on him going into the water. If Jesus is not baptized, you're not saved. 
You're like, oh, okay, so this, this is really important then. So let's, let's dig in why, why we can say that. Look at verse 15. This is Jesus' answer why he needs to be baptized. Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So what does it mean Jesus come to fulfill all righteousness? This is key here. Every time Matthew uses the word righteousness in his gospel, it refers to the right obedience to God. For example, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, we'll read, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This means Jesus' baptism is an act of obedience to God. He's coming to fulfill righteousness, to do all that the Father has called him to do. Now, the problem with humanity is that we're totally unrighteous. We do not obey God. In fact, the entire Old Testament, especially the story of Israel, is written so we would see the sinfulness of not only Israel, but of all humanity. This is why, this is why Paul will say in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12, he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That is a description of you and me apart from the grace of Christ. All of humanity is saying no one is righteous. No one meets the legal, legal demands of the law. Even as Christians, think about this. Even as Christians and dwelt with the Spirit, we do not perfectly obey God. I mean, think about it. A, a little bit ago, Chris led us in, in, in songs of praise. Who were we singing to? God. The creator of everything who's perfect and righteous and holy and glorious. Who contains all joy. And were we distracted at any point during that? Have you ever been distracted during your singing? Singing is one of the most holy things we can do. And yet we can go, what's that person doing? What are we doing for lunch today? Did I, do I need to text this person back right now? Our minds can be, or, or when we're praying. When we're praying or we're listening to someone pray and, and we're, we're pouring out our needs to God, trusting in his grace to meet our needs, to, to give us grace, to save us, to cleanse us, to help us, to provide whatever it is we're praying for. And yet, how often are we distracted when we're praying ourselves or we're listening to other people pray? As Jake is up here and he's reading the prayer, are we, are we thinking about the prayer or do we sometimes go, huh, did I set the chicken out? Maybe I set the chicken out. Even in our, in our purest acts, they're not as pure as we think they, they are. Because on this earth, until Christ returns, we, we will always wrestle with sin. I mean, think about it. How, how often does anger, lust, and envy run through our mind each day? Now, perhaps you're sitting here and you're thinking, I'm not really a sinner. I would not classify myself like that. I'm not really a lawbreaker. Or, or, or possibly you say something like, I'm not that bad, and immediately you begin to thinking of, Many, many others who you are morally better than. Have you ever done that? Oh, you're like, do we shake our head yes? Yes. 
if, if you at all in any way are confused about how unrighteous you are, stay with us as we go through the book of Matthew. In fact, in fact, here's a little preview. So in, in Matthew 5, Jesus is going to say, have you ever wrestled with anger in your heart? Then you're a sinner. He's going to say, have you ever lusted in your mind? Then you're a sinner. He's going to say, have you loved your enemies? If not, you're a sinner. Now you might say, well, that's ridiculous. That, that standard is too high. If that's the standard, no one is righteous. That's the point. Exactly. No one can meet the righteous demands of the law. That is our problem. We cannot live a life pleasing to God in our own power. But this is then why Jesus comes and he lives the perfect life. Jesus was baptized out of obedience to God for the sake of righteousness. Every act, every thought, every word that Jesus did on earth was in perfect obedience and submission to God. Jesus was baptized to make sure all the righteous demands of the law were fulfilled. Now, if you think about that for a moment, you might go, well, wait a minute. Jesus is righteous. He's eternally been righteous. If that's true, then why did Jesus have to come to earth to live a righteous life? It wasn't for his sake. Whose sake was it for then? It's for us. Listen to what one theologian said. I'm not going to say his name because I don't know how to say his name. Just as the suffering of Christ is necessary for the expiation, the removal of sin, a little hint there, expiation, removal of sin, so his active obedience and righteousness are necessary for the gaining of eternal life. This is because the law binds us both to punishment and to obedience. To punishment because it places a curse on anyone who does not perform all the works of the law. To obedience because it promises life only to those who keep it completely. Does that make sense? If I summarize it, it's like this. The death of Jesus pays the penalty of our sins. The life of Jesus merits the reward of eternal life. You get it? The death of Jesus pays the penalty. The life of Jesus merits us eternal life. L listen to what the Heidelberg Catechism says. It says, God without any merit of mine, meaning we don't contribute at all, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never had nor committed any sins, yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me. Paul says the same thing, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, what? We might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' death pays the penalty of our sins. But the reason why Jesus just couldn't come down at age 30, die on the cross, rise up again, is because we needed him to also live a perfect life so he could give us his righteousness. Does that make sense? 
His death pays the penalty. His life of righteousness is the only way that by faith in him, we are now counted righteous. Jesus is not simply a good moral person. To think that he's a mere example that we are to follow denies his divinity and denies the fact he lived the perfect righteous life that we could never have lived. You see, he's far more than a good example. He did what we could not do. He lived a life free from sin, free from anger, free from lust, free from envy. He never had a sexually immoral thought. He never stole. He never lied. He lived perfect honoring. He lived a perfect life honoring and glorifying God at all times. He did this so that by grace we could be given his righteousness when we believe in him. So Jesus was baptized out of obedience to God. It was his baptism was to fulfill all righteousness, to meet the righteous requirement of the law so that when God now looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son, that every aspect of the law has been fulfilled, and so we are allowed into the kingdom of God, not on the basis of our work, but on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. So let me just show you how practical this is. You might be, okay, so just death pays penalty, life, righteousness, great. Just put those away for some theological facts when we're playing, I don't know, Bible Jeopardy or something, right? But it's practical. This is something that will give you joy and assurance every single day of your life. Think about this. The Bible says that Satan is our accuser. Read that in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Every day he, he wants to condemn us before God. So imagine this conversation between you and Satan. Satan asks, have you, have, you, have you disobeyed the law of God? And you say, well, yes. Yes, I have. To which he replies, then you must be punished. You are guilty. To which then you respond, that's true. But Jesus went to the cross for me. And in my place, he took my punishment that I deserve. So my debt has been paid, so I'm no longer guilty before God. So Satan then says, so have you lived a perfect righteous life now? Have you kept the demands of the law? Are you able to do the demands that God has required so you can enter into his kingdom? And you say, well, no, I, I haven't done that either. I still sin. Even when obeying God, sometimes my motives are not pure. Satan will then say, well, that means you are dirty. You are unworthy to enter the kingdom of God. You are still clothed in your filthy rags of disobedience. To which now you respond, that would be true. But Jesus came and he lived the perfect righteous life for me. He obeyed and submitted to God at all times. And by grace, he's now clothed me with his righteousness. Righteousness. So now when the father looks at me, he sees the righteousness of his son as if I have met all the demands of the law. I enter the everlasting kingdom of God because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, to which now Satan will walk away like a four-year-old who is upset because his toy was taken away. Do you see the joy we have because Jesus lived a righteous life? Do you see the assurance of salvation that we have? Jesus lived 
a righteous life so you, by faith in him, would be counted righteous. This means when you mess up, when you sin, when you stumble in your faith, you don't need to think, so now I'm, I'm covered in filth and dirt again. God must be disgusted at my sin. He probably has abandoned me. I have no hope of now entering the kingdom of God because I have stumbled again and again and again. But what do we learn here? At the cross, Jesus paid the penalty of our sins, and he's now clothed us with his righteousness. So now the Father looks at you, even in spite of your stumbling, and sees clothed with righteousness. So your sins do not keep you from the Father. Because when the Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his Son upon you. And I know there's many of you. I've had conversations with you. And there's many people within church, not just our church, but in the church. Who every time they sin, they go, I wonder if the Father no longer loves me. I wonder if I've done too much now and the Father has no longer has patience for me. Have I fallen out of grace? To which Jesus says, no, I have come here to be baptized and to do everything that the Father has told me so I would fulfill all righteousness. So your filthy rags have been taken off. In fact, Christ is the one who put on our filthy rags and went to the cross and died for the penalty of our sins so then he would put his holy, righteous clothes upon us so we could have everlasting life with the Father. Believe in Christ. Do not remain in your sin. Jesus is the great servant king who by his life, death, and resurrection offers us salvation. Remember, Jesus is a just king. He will punish sin. Your sin is either punished at the cross in Jesus, and you've been given his righteousness, or you reject Jesus, which means you will suffer for the penalty of your sins. You will come before a firing squad, and there is no hope for mercy or for relief. Judgment will come. I urge you today to know Christ, to know the gift that he gives you. By his death, he pays the penalty of our sins. By his life, he gives us his righteousness so we would be counted righteous and be, be entered into the kingdom for all of eternity. There's no greater joy, there's no greater assurance than knowing Christ Jesus. So the main point today is, is, is as has been phrased, rejoice and be baptized for the servant king has come to save us. I want you to think, joy in baptism, that's the proper response to the baptism of Jesus. At the end of Matthew, Jesus commands his disciples, which every believer, to go into the world sharing the gospel, baptizing people into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus' first act of ministry is to be baptized. His last words before he ascends to the throne of God is, that we are to go and baptize one another, that we are to be baptized. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are commanded by Christ, by your king, to be baptized. And so uh, I want to spend a few moments and just talk about what we affirm, four affirmations that we're testifying of, that we're affirming when we are baptized. So here we go. Number one. When you are baptized, you are saying, I have been forgiven of my sins by the death and resurrection of King Jesus. 
See, when you are baptized, you affirm your sins have been paid for in full by the death of Christ. Just as Jesus, at his baptism, goes into the water, that's a foreshadow later when he will go into the grave paying the price for your sins. He died so our sins could be paid for. So number one, I've been forgiven of my sins by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Number two, when you are baptized, you are affirming, I have been clothed with the righteousness of King Jesus. When you come up out of the water, you are clean. You've been given the righteousness of Christ so that now you are righteous. This is when you step into the shower, you're filthy and you're dirty, but when you come out of the water, you're clean. So baptism is a picture of that. We go down in our filth and we're raised in the newness of life and the righteousness of Christ. That is what our baptism testifies of. That is what Jesus, when he's baptized, points to. He's come to fulfill all righteousness just as he goes into the water for our sins and rises up victorious so we also testify of what he has done for us. Number three, I have been empowered by the Spirit to follow King Jesus. When you are saved, you are given the Spirit of God who lives in you that you would now live like Jesus. So when you are when you're baptized, you're not only saying my sins have been paid for, I'm counted righteous, but now I have been raised to live a new life. In fact, Romans 6.4 will say this. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We'll look at this more next week, but the evidence that you've been clothed with righteousness is that you walk in righteousness, that you now live like Jesus. Jesus doesn't give us his righteousness and say, live however you want. It doesn't matter. It's not a freedom to sin. Rather, he gives us his righteousness so we would now live in righteousness. And our baptism testifies that. We get baptized publicly to say, I will no longer live as I did before. I will no longer live in rebellion to God. But now, and I ask you, the church, to hold me accountable, to encourage me, to walk with me, that I would live a righteous life for the glory of God. That's what we're testifying, and that's what we're asking the church to do at our baptism. Number four, I have been united to the triune God. Jesus says in Matthew 28 that we are actually baptized into the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. God saves us that we be forever united to him and with him. Think about it, just as the Father, Son, and Spirit are present at Jesus' baptism, so they're also present at your baptism. If you're a believer and you have not yet been baptized, I urge you to do so. There is no reason to wait. If you know Christ, if you believe in him, be baptized. In fact, later this month, we're having some classes on baptism. You can sign up through something on the bulletin, something you scan, and it'll take you to all that. And then in February, we're going to be doing um, a baptism Sunday. But I urge you to do so. Jesus came that through his baptism, he would testify of his ministry, what he has come to do, first and foremost, to say that he is our savior and our king. And secondly, we are to follow him into the waters of baptism. And so I urge you, if you have not yet been baptized, to, ba to be baptized. For in your baptism, you are testifying that Jesus is your king, that Jesus is your Lord, that your sins have been paid for, that you have been given the righteousness of God, that you live for the righteousness of Christ, and 
you have been united to God for all of eternity. That is what our baptism stands for. And so let us rejoice. Let us rejoice in who Christ is, what he's done for us. And if you have not yet been baptized, then I urge you to be baptized into Christ. Let's pray. Father, Father, we praise you this morning. We praise you that you have come out of the, the love of the Father. You would come to save us. That Jesus, you lived a perfect life. You went to the cross out of joy, out of willingness, out of submission to the will of the Father that you would conquer sin, that you would pay the penalty of our sin, that you would overcome death, that you would overcome Satan so that we could be forgiven. And Father, we praise you that your son has come and he lived the perfect, righteous life and that by grace, you now count us righteous, not because of anything we have done, but because of what your son has done. Father, I pray that everyone here knows and sees the truth of the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus. That it's only because of what he has done that we are able to be saved and have everlasting life with you. Lord, I pray that you would give us assurance of our salvation, that if we have truly trusted in you, then we would know that we are clothed in the righteous, holy clothes of your son, Jesus Christ. And that, God, we are permitted into your kingdom because of what Christ has done, not because of our works. Father, may we rejoice in that. May we remember that truth. And when we face the lies of Satan, may we come back with the truth of Scripture saying, no, Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness, and that has been given to me by grace. Father, we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.